Hello everyone and welcome to our online service. It's really, really wonderful to be with you today. I'm so glad you could join us. We're going to be continuing in our series called Kings and Kingdoms, and we're in the second chapter of One Kings today. And today's message is called Actions and Consequences. I remember a couple of actions I've taken that have had consequences that I wasn't that excited about. I remember one time I was driving home from Cavendish and I had to turn right into Bowood Road and um, I had to do that somewhere between four and six in the afternoon. So if you've ever done that, you know the traffic at that time, it's, it's pretty serious. So I thought, you know what, I need to dodge a little bit of this traffic in a bit of a rush. So I sneaked up one of those little side roads to the right and, and then cut back left. And so I got to Bowood Road real quick real quick but then of course you know I've got to turn right across Bowdoin there's a bit of a dip as you go so I had to like really wait for my gap and it was quite hard and I ended up thinking man I should have probably just stuck in the traffic and got through the robots anyway I eventually found a gap off I shot but to be able to get out and not damage the car I ended up having to turn quite wide and uh, I ended up straightening up through the gutter on the far side and of course someone had decided to, uh, to drink a beer or something and had left the broken bottle there in the gutter and it sliced right through my tire. Now I really regretted that decision as I stood on the side of the road. I was trying to save myself two minutes and I've cost myself 500 bucks and half an hour of my time. That one didn't really go so well. Remember another time uh, out on a family friend's farm, they bought a small holding up in Malmesbury and uh, we were young at the time, you know, sort of early, early teenagers, not quite teenagers, preteens. And man, our favorite thing to do, me and, and their son, Barry, we used to go out and uh, we used to chop down alien vegetation on the farm. We used to be armed with a punga and a machete, um, sorry, not a machete, but uh, a hatchet, a small axe. And, uh, and we'd go and we'd chop down all these Port Jackson and trees that were just aliens and taking up space, which they couldn't cultivate. And uh, so we were doing this the one day and we came across a tree that was slightly thicker than usual. And uh, so we thought, well, what, what we'd do is I would take the tree and I'd kind of hold it down so it would be under tension and then Barry would be able to swing the axe into the tree and split the trunk more easily. Of course, there's a rule when you're using an axe uh, and it's called the two axe lengths rule. And you, you don't stand closer than two axe lengths to the person wielding the sharp implements. Yeah, I ignored that rule and wound up with an axe in my leg. So that, that was another, you know, interesting time. Uh, I think probably about 11 stitches and a little trip to the hospital. Um, but there was another decision that had consequences. It was a decision, a regret in hindsight. Not that badly, because I'm still okay. But just, you know, set the scene, a couple of light stories. Today we're going to talk about 1 Kings chapter 2. And 1 Kings chapter 2 is about the consequences of our actions. It's one of those chapters in the scriptures that's not a particularly light or fluffy chapter. It's not really going to make us feel good as we read into it. And just a warning for those of you with families, there is some content in the chapter that we're going to cover that's a little bit, a little bit hectic uh, for, for our younger viewers. But it's one of these chapters in the Bible that teaches us by illustration a core and a primary tenet in the gospel. And that is that the gospel requires justice. And brings about and creates justice. Now it's quite a long chapter. And so as much as I would love to go through it with you section by section, we're instead going to have to summarize and retell it a bit, quoting some key scripture as we go along. So let's kick off with a bit of an overview. Let's, let's remember the context, right? David is old. Roland told us last week he's dying. He's lying in his bed. He can't really get up and about. 
And uh, his son Adonijah has just tried to set himself up as king. But Nathan and Bathsheba, they have come to David. They reminded him of the vow that he made that Solomon would be king. Uh, And so David makes a plan and Solomon gets crowned and anointed king. And 1 Kings chapter 1 ends with Adonijah coming up to the newly crowned Solomon and begging for mercy because he knows what he's done has been wrong and sinful. And Solomon grants him that mercy but says to him, listen, so long as you continue to act in a manner that is worthy, in a way that is righteous, nothing will happen to you. So that's how chapter 1 ends. Then we get into chapter 2. Chapter 2 kicks off. It has two main sections. And the first section is David sharing his last words with his son Solomon. And then the second section is where Solomon takes those words and he puts them into action. And so those those last words, they start with this exhortation to be godly, to follow God with his whole heart. And then David says, listen, Solomon, there's some people who have done me some wrong. And you need to bring about some justice in their lives. And chapter 2 shows how Solomon goes about doing just that. So let's jump into the opening 10 verses of 1 Kings chapter 2, and we'll go from there. It says this, As the time of King David's death approached, he gave this charge to his son Solomon. I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all of his ways. Keep the decrees, the commands, the regulations, and the laws written in the law of Moses, so that you will be successful in all that you do wherever you go. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise that he made to me. He told me if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all of their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. Now there is something else. You know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me when he murdered my two army commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was done in a time of peace, staining his belt and his sandals with innocent blood. Do with him what you think is best, but don't let him grow old and go to his grave in peace. Be kind to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead. Make them permanent guests at your table, for they took care of me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember Shimei, son of Gera, the man from Barum in Benjamin. He cursed me with a terrible curse as I was fleeing to Mahanaim. Sorry, fun words here. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan River, I swore by the Lord that I would not kill him. But that oath does not make him innocent. You are a wise man and you will know how to arrange a bloody death for him. Then David died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. David had reigned over Israel for 40 years, seven of them in Hebron and 33 in Jerusalem. Solomon became king and sat on the throne of David his father and his kingdom was firmly established. So here at the beginning of chapter 2, we've got David's last words. And David mentions three people, Joab, Barzillai, and Shimei, and the things that these people have done. And in addition to these three, we'll see as we go into the rest of chapter 2 that Solomon also deals with Adonijah and Abithar. They come back into the picture. And so in order to properly understand this chapter that we've begun to read together, we need to know a little bit about the key players. And so let's do a few quick character profiles, and and you can really find all of this information out if you want to do that for yourself by just reading back into the book of 2 Samuel. And all of these characters come out, and the things that they do and the way in which they've lived comes out clearly for us in the book of 2 Samuel. But let's start with Joab. Joab is the commander of David's armies. He served David for over 30 years, and he led David's army to victory after victory. 
He was clearly very good as a general. We have no record of Joab ever losing a battle. But he didn't always do what David asked him. And three times David asked him and he, to do something and he deliberately disobeyed David because he wanted to murder someone. So first, right at the beginning of David's reign, we see Joab murders Abner. Abner was the commander of Israel's armies, of Saul's armies at the time. And after a number of years of war, Abner decides to negotiate with David and agrees to support him instead of Ishbosheth, which was King Saul's descendant at the time. David agreed to the deal and they have the celebration. The war is over. They can finally realize God's promise that David will be king of all Israel. But after the feast, Joab lures Abner to a secret meeting and he murders him there because Previously, in a previous battle, years before, Abner had reluctantly killed Joab's brother because he refused to stop pursuing him. Secondly, we move decades later and we find that Joab has murdered David's son, Absalom. Absalom is David's third son and he also attempts to lead a rebellion against his father. So the rebellion is put down and after the rebellion has been put down, David's very careful to tell his whole army and to Joab in particular. He says, I want you to deal gently with my son Absalom. But when Absalom is found and he's caught helpless in a tree, his hair gets stuck in some branches, Joab murders him in cold blood. Thirdly, a short time after that, Joab murders a guy called Amasa. Amasa was the commander of the armies of Judah. They're a subset of the army, the whole Israelite army. And they, were, they should have been working together, Joab and Amasa, to put down another rebellion, this time a chap called Sheba. But instead, Joab decides to murder Amasa, presumably to take over the command of Judah's forces. Joab is portrayed for us as a man who was always looking out for himself. He was a man of power, and by all appearances, he was untouchable during David's reign. He was a successful public figure. He was probably well-loved by the populace because he kept winning battle after battle after battle. He believed that he could do whatever he wanted and get away with it. And for most of his life, that was true. I mean, in many ways, he kind of resembles Jacob Zuma. That's Joab. Let's move on to Barzillai. Barzillai is a much simpler character to follow. He's the one shining light in 1 Kings chapter 2. In 2 Samuel 19, we're told how Barzillai, as an old man, welcomed the deposed King David and he hosted him and his men when they came to Mahanaim when they were fleeing from Absalom's rebellion. And as a result of his kindness, David accepted Barzillai's son into his own retinue. In other words, he, he gave him a really nice cushy government job with a whole whack of perks, right? which is said without any disrespect to our friends who work in governments here at Connect. I love and appreciate you guys. One of my friends works there, works real hard. But here in 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 7, David instructs Solomon. He says to him, I want you to make Barzillai's son a permanent member of your court and officials. He, he ensures for his son and his son's descendants, he ensures that they're looked after for the rest of their lives by the king. And Barzillai's example shows us how even a small action that's offered in faith is seen and rewarded by God. Actions have consequences, and they can have good ones too. Thirdly, we meet Shimei. Shimei is, and this is a different Shimei from the one we met in the previous chapter. In 1 Kings chapter 1, there's a different Shimei who's with David. This Shimei is against David. Right, he's a descendant of Saul, and he supported Saul as king over Israel rather than David. And as a result, when David fled from Jerusalem during Absalom's rebellion, and he passed near to where Shimei lived, Shimei came out, and he continually yelled curses at David. He followed him down the road, and he threw rocks at him, it says. 
And at the time, David chose not to punish him because you must know these actions, that, those, that was a capital offense. Shimei could have been put to death for the things that he was doing. But he doesn't do that. At the time, David chooses not to punish him. And later, shortly afterwards, Absalom's rebellion is put down. Then we see Shimei, he comes scurrying back, his tail's between his legs. And he comes to David and he, and he begs for forgiveness. And David gives him this, this oath, offered in grace. And he says, I promise that I won't kill you. After, after these three characters, 1 Kings presents us with two more characters. They were in focus in, in chapter 1, right? Adonijah and Abitha, the high priest. Roland covered them last week, so we're just going to touch on them briefly. Adonijah was David's fourth son, and he was the second to attempt to take the throne from his father illegitimately. His political coup has just failed in chapter 1, and he comes to Solomon to beg forgiveness. Solomon tells him to live righteously, and then he will suffer no more consequences. That's Adonijah. Abiathar is the he's the principal high priest during David's reign. And he was the only priest to escape the massacre that Saul perpetrated against Ahimelech and the priests at Nob in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And since that time, he has served faithfully with David throughout the time that he fled from Saul and then throughout his reign. These are the five key characters around which the story of 1 Kings chapter 2 is going to center. And the rest of the chapter is given over to the consequences of the actions that each of these different individuals took. So let's take a look at those together and then we'll begin to draw some conclusions and some observations that we can take and apply into our own lives. So let's ask, what, what really happened? What happened to everyone? And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to flow with the order that the, the text gives us. We're going to start with Adonijah. Right. Adonijah has just survived a, a failed coup. And yet his brother's been really lenient with him. Solomon's been gracious to him. And one would hope this would inspire some kind of gratitude in Adonijah because he could have been, his scheme has failed. It, it's time for him to pick up the pieces and move on. He's got a new lease on life. He could have been put to death for his scheming, but he wasn't. But unfortunately, Adonijah doesn't see it that way, right? And so no sooner has this first scheme failed than Adonijah's at it again. And this time his plan is to subvert Solomon's authority by enhancing his own claim toward the throne by marrying Abishag. Now, if you remember from last week, Abishag is this young girl that's sent to care for David in chapter 1. And it's probable that David married her as a means of legitimizing the close contact, the physical contact that they would have had, because she would come and slept in his bed in order to keep him warm, which would otherwise have been very taboo in their culture. But at this point, um, polygamy was still kind of accepted. David had a lot of different wives, and so it's probable that David marries uh, Abishag and so Adonijah comes and he is seeking to marry his father's widow, again, against the law, right? And he's seeking to do that in order to bolster his claim to the throne. He also knows that this is not going to go down well if he asks Solomon straight, right? So he goes to Solomon's mother and he's hoping that she's got Solomon's ear. So he's like, if I can get Bathsheba to agree, she can ask Solomon and then maybe it'll work out. So let's dip back into chapter two and let's see how that goes for him. 1 Kings chapter 2, 19 to 24. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak on Adonijah's behalf. The king rose from his throne to meet her, and he bowed down before her. When he sat down on his throne again, the king ordered that another throne be brought for his mother, and she sat at his right hand. So you can see she really does have his ear. She says, I have one small request to make of you, she said. I hope you won't turn me down. What is it, my mother? He asked. You know I won't refuse you. Then let your brother Adonijah Marry Abishag, the girl from Shimon, she replied. 
How can you possibly ask me to give a Bishak to Adonijah, King Solomon demanded? You might as well ask me to give him the kingdom. You know that he is my older brother and that he has Abithel the priest and Joab the son of Zariah on his side. Then King Solomon made a vow before the Lord. May God strike me and even kill me if Adonijah has not sealed his fate with this request. The Lord has confirmed me and placed me on the throne of my father David. He has established my dynasty as he promised. Surely as the Lord lives, Adonijah will die this very day. Adonijah wanted it all. What he got was death. What we can see and learn from Adonijah's life is the danger of too much ambition. We can see when ambition becomes pride and pride becomes arrogance. We can see what happens when there's no humility present in our lives. Adonijah's life was in Solomon's hands. He was spared. He could have been happy. He could have lived as the brother of the king, which I'm sure would have been quite a lavish and enjoyable life. But he could not swallow his pride and he could not accept his lot and his station. He chose not to. He chose to reject the role that God had for him. And in his arrogance to become everything that he wanted to be. Adonijah is the prime example of pride that comes before the fall. Sadly for him, he paid with his life. Even more, unfortunately, the consequences of his actions don't end there, but they extend to those who choose, chose to follow him. So let's look at Abithel. Abithel was Israel's high priest throughout David's reign. He had been faithful to David right from before David was king, whilst he's still running away from Saul. But at the very end of David's life, Abithel betrays him. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, David makes this very clear declaration to all Israel. It's like, hear ye, hear ye, thus saith the king. You know, that kind of thing. Everyone's gathered, everyone's around. And he makes it very clear that God has told him that Solomon must be the next heir. But at the end, Abithel chooses to back Adonijah rather than Solomon. So as a result, after Adonijah's second failed scheme, Solomon acts against Abithel as well. This is what the passage says. 1 Kings 2, 26 and 27. Then the king said to Abithel the priest, Go back to your home in Anathoth. You deserve to die, but I will not kill you because you carried the ark of the sovereign Lord for David my father and you shared all of his hardships. So Solomon deposed Abithel from his position as priest of the Lord, thereby fulfilling the prophecy the Lord had given at Shiloh concerning the descendants of Eli. Abithel's judgment is perhaps the hardest of all of them to bear. Because we have this man who has faithfully served God for his entire life. Indeed, he's really suffered for the way in which he served God. He's the sole survivor of his family and of his clan. He served God and David from the very beginning right up until the end. And yet he ends his days in disgrace because he committed one critical sin right at the end. He knew what God had decreed, and yet he acted in rebellion and he followed his own judgment rather than that of his God or his king. He pays the price for it. Abithel for me is the saddest of the five characters that we look at. His fall from grace is the highest. I find in him this embodiment of the text we find it in Ezekiel chapter 18, where God speaks to and through Ezekiel and he says, Do you not do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the Sovereign Lord? Of course not. 
I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like sinners, should they still be allowed to live? Of course not. All of their righteous acts will be forgotten and they will die in their sins. It's a harsh words from the God of heaven. Thankfully for us, they're not the final words. More on that later. Let's come to Joab. Joab, the military commander. Joab, the powerful. Joab, the untouchable. He was a man who had made it through his life, paying lip service to God whilst doing and taking whatever he wanted. He was a man who seemed to have it all and be living the high life. And at the end, his actions catch up with him. 1 Kings chapter 2, 31 and 32. Do as he said, the king replied. Kill him there beside the altar and bury him. This will remove the guilt of Joab's senseless murders from me and from my father's family. The Lord will repay him for the murders of the two men who were more righteous and better than he. Joab is the example for us of the wicked who eventually get their due. He is the picture of those who escape justice their whole life, only to be held accountable at the very end. Joab teaches us that God's way is not our way. Even though we might think that we're reaching the same objective, God cares about how we live and what we accomplish. The end does not justify the means in God's eyes. Our ethic and the righteousness of our lives matter before God. That's why Jesus taught us to identify a tree by the fruit that it bears. Because those who truly serve Jesus will live lives that bear that fruit. And those people whose lives bear bad fruit show that there is a bad heart. Finally, we come to Shammai. Shammai, the son of Gerah, who in anger and arrogance cursed and abused the anointed king of Israel. Shammai was convinced that David had sinfully rebelled against Saul and he chose to hold David personally accountable and responsible for Saul's death. He saw David as a usurper and a tyrant. And unfortunately for Shema, he was just very wrong. And that was not what had happened. And so in his anger, he commits this capital crime. And initially, he gets away with it because David is not prepared to discount the possibility that he's acting at the Lord's prompting. Because David's feeling himself out of favor at the moment when this happens because of Absalom's rebellion. But when the rebellion is put down, and David returns back to Jerusalem as the rightful king. We see Shimei come crawling back, wishing he had simply kept his mouth shut in the first place. And David originally pardons him, but he does not forget. And here in chapter 2, we see Solomon act as God's agent of judgment. It says this in verses 36 and 38 to 38. The king then sent for Shema and told him, Build a house here in Jerusalem and live there, but do not step outside the city or go anywhere else. On the day that you so much as cross the Kidron Valley, you will surely die and your blood will be on your own head. Shema replied, Your sentence is fair and I will do whatever the Lord, my lord the king commands. So Shema lived in Jerusalem for a long time. Solomon's initial judgment of Shema shows a mercy that Shema did not deserve. But perhaps he was given because of his repentance. 
Unfortunately, after three years, Shimei has forgotten or he's belittled the judgment. He doesn't think it's that important anymore. And so when some of his slaves run away, he sets out to find them and to bring them back. But unfortunately for him, Solomon finds out about this journey and proves that his judgment was not an idle threat. And so in verse 46 of chapter 2, we read, Then at the king's command, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, took Shimei outside and killed him. Shimei's story illustrates some harsh lessons for us. It teaches us that some actions still have consequences, even if we repent of them afterwards. Paul warns the Galatian church. He tells them to be careful. He tells them in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Whoever sows to their flesh from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Even as Christians, we are warned that our sinful actions have consequences that we will have to endure. And God's forgiveness doesn't take away those consequences. Secondly, Shimei's story demonstrates the very real danger we entertain when we act and when we speak in anger. Actions and words said and committed in anger are almost guaranteed to be sinful. And their consequences may extend far beyond the occasion that provoked them. This is why Christians are told to put away our anger and our bitterness and to treat one another with tenderness and kindness. Ephesians chapter 4. Finally, Shimei reminds us not to take God's judgment lightly. Judgment and its consequences are not a topic that we like to talk about a lot in the church these days. But the story of Shimei reminds us that God does not forget. God is proxied here by Solomon. Just because it happened in the past doesn't mean it's forgotten. And because God is just, all sin will be punished. Because God is just. So let's bring this thing into land. Let's wrap up. When we, now that we know what 1 Kings 2 is all about, let me make some conclusions and some observations. Three key ideas that we find in 1 Kings chapter 2. First and the most obvious is this. Our actions have consequences. They will have consequences and we will not escape them. We see this as true both of righteous and of sinful action. Our actions and righteousness will result in life and blessing and they will be remembered. Our sinful actions result in death and disgrace and they can't be escaped. Secondly, we see from this passage that the immediate consequences of our actions are not always the full consequences. Joab and Shimei in particular illustrate this. It took 32 years for Joab to pay for Abner's murder. That means for 32 years, Joab thought he'd gotten away with it. That when he looked at his life, for 30 years, he would have backed the decisions that he had made as the right ones. For 30 years, there'd be no evidence that he would have to face justice for his actions. And so he would have felt justified in living the way in which he had. And sometimes we can do that ourselves. We can justify our actions because we haven't been punished for them. But he was deceived. God was not to be mocked. And eventually he reaped what he sowed. Thirdly, and most importantly, really most importantly, 1 Kings chapter 2 acts for us as a foreshadowing of the ultimate justice and judgment of God. 
It is a lived metaphor where Solomon plays the part that Jesus will one day play. And as we read the story of 1 Kings chapter 2, our eyes are meant to be drawn to the fuller picture of God's justice and his judgment. Just as Solomon was established on the throne of Israel, so God reigns on his throne in heaven. Just as Solomon brought every deed into judgment, so one day Jesus will do the same for every person that has ever lived and for everything that they have ever done. That which was done in the darkness will be proclaimed from the rooftops, Jesus said. Do not be deceived, friends. The standard has not been lowered. In fact, it's been raised. Every one of us will face the righteous judgment of Christ, just like a Bible, no matter how well we have lived Every one of us will fall short of God's righteous standard. And every one of us will face God's justice. But for those of us who are in Christ, for those who have chosen to genuinely follow Jesus and acknowledge Him as Lord, whose faith is more than the lip service of Shimei, Joab, or Adonijah, Christ will stand alongside us. He will atone for our sin and the punishment that we will deserve will have been meted out on him already. And he will welcome us into his Father's kingdom. But for those who are outside of Christ, they will have to bear the righteous judgment of God themselves. And they will be found eternally wanting. As a Christian, the story in 1 Kings chapter 2 is of great encouragement to me. Especially at a time like this in our country where sin and violence is rampant and where many will never pay for the actions that they have committed and the need for justice is so great. And I know the reasons for these actions are complex and nuanced. But they are evil. They are ungodly. And I know I can trust in the justice and the judgment of God and that there will be a reckoning. But, and friends, hear me, but... I am also aware that but for the grace of Christ, I would face the same reckoning. And but for the grace of Christ, I would be found just as wanting. And so it is my genuine desire as we look in our country and we see the brokenness and the sinfulness and the evil that is being perpetrated. It is my genuine desire that those same agents of destruction and violence would find the mercy and the redemption that exists in Christ. Because as he has forgiven me, so... We can forgive others. The story of 1 Kings chapter 2 reminds me of the seriousness of sin. And it calls me again to greater and greater degrees of righteousness. To seek God for that, to seek with God that continuing transformation in my own heart. To become more and more like Christ. And if today, as you listen to this, you know that you are not yet someone who follows Christ. And you're beginning to become aware of this growing sense of unease about the trajectory of your life and the things that you have done and are doing. And you want to talk. We would love to help. We would love to chat with you. We would love to help you find the same faith that we have in Jesus. And so please, please reach out and contact us. You can email our office, office at connectchurch.org.za. You can phone them. 0217121218. And we would love to help you. Let's take a moment and, and pray together. Lord, I thank you that you are a just God. 
I thank you, Lord, that we can trust in your justice. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that in your righteousness, every sin that has ever been committed will be held to account. I thank you, God, that nothing is overlooked, that our sense of, of justice and rightness and righteousness and our need for, for things to be, to be dealt with, for justice to be served, will ultimately be found in you. And you will ensure that righteousness prevails. And we bless you and we thank you for that, God. We thank you that you are able to judge perfectly and we judge imperfectly. We thank you, God, that you will ultimately set this score straight. And we trust in you for that. And I pray for us, God, where we are falling short, where we are neglecting to to respond to you in righteousness as you desire, where we have justified in our own hearts and moved away from the calling of God and chosen to go in our own ways and follow our own wisdom. And Lord, I pray that you would call us back. I pray that you would remind us again of the importance of obedience to you. I thank you, God, that you are so incredibly faithful and where we, we follow you in righteousness and faith, God, you are so gracious and faithful to bless us. For something that you yeah, for the grace of being able to follow you. We thank you for that, God. And we pray, Lord, that you would help all of us become more and more like Jesus and seek more and more to follow you and to be like you and to be molded and to be shaped by you, so that our lives will be like Bar's life, who would, would respond to you in righteousness, and that we wouldn't stray into our own wisdom we wouldn't stray into following our own desires we wouldn't abandon the calling of god but that we would stay the course to the end we ask this in your name king jesus amen friends thank you so much for joining us and uh, this has been an opportunity to continue our, our preaching series with you but we recognize as well there's some really hectic stuff that's happening in our country at the moment and we don't just want to acknowledge the ultimate end of those things we, we don't just want to understand them, but we want to pray. We want to pray and we want to ask for our God and our King to intercede, to intervene, to touch the lives of the people that are involved in this. And so I'm going to pass over and hand over to Howard. And Howard's just going to lead us in a time of prayer. And we'd love to invite you to join us as we pray for our nation at this time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. It's been a very traumatic week in our country and so we thought it important that we spend some time in prayer in our online service praying for our nation. As I record this, I'm aware that about more than 70 people have lost their lives and billions of rands worth of damage has been done to the economy. Many people have lost businesses and uh, I believe more than 200 shopping centers have been looted. So it truly is on a, a massive scale. I take heart from 2 Chronicles 7.14 where the promise is given that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, the Lord says he will hear our prayer, he will forgive our sins and he will heal our land. So let's spend a little bit of time right now interceding for our country. Lord, we bring before you the people of South Africa and we pray for peace and calm to reign in our nation. 
We pray that the looting would stop, that the violence would stop, that the destruction of property would cease. We pray that we would be a country, Lord, where people respect one another, where we care for one another. We pray for those that have been involved in the looting and in violence, that they would regret what that they have done, that they would feel remorse, Lord, and that they would repent. We pray for the government that you would help them to lead us as a country at this time. We pray for our president. We pray for the members of the cabinet. We pray for the security cluster. We pray that you would give them wisdom, Lord. We pray for the police. We pray for soldiers on the streets. Help them to use their authority wisely and carefully and, and graciously and justly. We pray for our politicians that they would put factionalism aside and that they would pull together and put our country first. Lord, we pray again for those who have lost loved ones and businesses. Comfort them, Lord, and, and, and help them as they walk into the future. We pray, Lord, in this time of food insecurity. We pray that people would be able to put food on the table. And we pray, Lord, that you would turn things around for us as a country. That jobs would cre be created. That uh, inequality would, would be reduced. And we pray that peace would reign, that people would love one another, and that this would be a peaceful country in which to live. So we ask you, Sovereign Lord, to bless South Africa and all who live here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to be very much in prayer for our country in the days that lie ahead. Goodbye.